As record amounts of solar and wind power come online, the way we generate electricity is rapidly shifting away from polluting fuels like coal and gas to cleaner energy resources. This transformation can make electricity more reliable and affordable, but some of the most influential people determining whether and how that happens are almost completely unknown to the public. Today, we're talking about public utility commissioners, who they are, why they're so important, and how you can engage with them to have your say in a cleaner energy future. In 11 states, commissioners have to run for election, and a number of those people will be up for a vote this fall. With the electricity sector accounting for 32% of total U.S. energy-related emissions, and with a grip on American pocketbooks amid rising prices, there's a lot at stake in these elections and in what these commissions do in the future. I'm Julia Piper, host of the Political Climate Podcast, which is produced with support from the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. Welcome back to another episode of Newsflash, a special monthly series where we're shedding light on stories you may have missed or that needed a double click. I'm back today with Maria Virginia Alano, who produces the show. Hi, Maria Virginia. Tell us about what we're discussing today. Hi, Julia. I'm so glad to be back behind the mic on the podcast today. So a couple of weeks ago, we had a special series at Canary Media called Power by the People, where we focused our coverage on grassroots clean energy projects and how communities across the country are engaging with and pushing for affordable, accessible, clean energy. We'll link that series in the show notes, and I definitely encourage everyone to go check it out. One of the stories from that project was a beginner's guide to public utility commissions. As it turns out, they are very important when it comes to local action on clean energy. My colleague, Julian Spector, who is senior reporter at Canary Media, wrote that story, and he's here with us today to tell us about it. Awesome. To that end, let's bring in Julian. It's so great to have you here, Julian. We've worked together for a number of years, and yet I can't believe this is the first time we're having you on the podcast. Major oversight on my part. Oh, well, I'm, I'm honored to be uh, included at last. And um, yeah, it's great to be with you here on this uh, fall day. Well, you've done a ton of reporting on all things across the energy transition. In one of your recent pieces for Canary Media, you looked at not just the transition, but the infrastructure, the decision-making infrastructure that really sets the rules of the road for how the transition unfolds. And that's the concept of these public utility commissions or public corporation commissions or what are also known as public service commissions, which we'll refer to mostly here as PUCs. And these are sort of the gatekeepers in the whole process. So can you walk us through what exactly these entities are and what they mean for all of us? Absolutely. Yeah, no, this um, kind of goes back to the very early days uh, of me being on the, the clean energy beat and um, kept hearing this refrain where people would have these great ambitious ideas for changing the energy world, but it had to be approved by the PUC. Everyone would say, well, if it gets approved by the PUC, we can do this amazing thing. And so I was like, oh, what is what is that? Who wields this power? And um, it turns out they're really kind of the the underappreciated gatekeepers of the whole clean energy transition. So, uh, you know, a public utility commission at the most um, basic level, it's they're regulators who oversee for-profit monopolies on behalf of the public. And so, you know, that's actually broader than the the electric grid. You have, you know, fiber optics, telecom, things like that. But for our purposes, they basically tell utilities what they can and can't charge customers for. And that ends up deciding what kind of power plants get built, you know, what the fabric of the grid looks like. Um, And going ahead into this world of electrification of transportation and buildings, 
they hold the keys to getting the infrastructure in place to effectively switch all our cars to electric and switch our buildings from running on fossil fuels to electric. So they're they're enormously powerful. And in most states, it's only a handful of people. In some cases, three individuals. Many states have five members on their commission. So as we're looking ahead to how to actually execute this massive society-wide switch to clean energy, these handful of individuals actually will tremendous sway over, you know, what will end up happening. Right. And even though these commissioners have a direct influence in our lives, most of us don't know much, if at all, about them. Could you give us some examples of concrete decisions made by PUCs that directly impact clean energy, either by supporting more generation that is renewable and clean, or by keeping fossil fuels in the grid? One very uh, important issue that they decide is kind of compensation for distributed energy, uh, as in net metering for rooftop solar. Um, so California is right now debating uh, at their PC, you know, how to change the amount of money that solar customers get compensated. And in some states, there's uh, been sort of swings from a, a very good compensation for your exported solar to much lower, or maybe there's fees or changing kind of the, the rules of the road there. And that can have enormous implications for the rooftop solar industry in a state. Um, now, that's just, you know, on the distributed side, but it, it, every major power plant that a uh, utility wants to build and then get paid back for by its customers, that has to be approved by these regulators. So um, if a utility wants to build a bunch more gas power plants, uh, which many of them do, you know, that's something that the PUC gets to vote on. And so if you have a group of commissioners who understands the, the growing suite of clean energy tools that can provide for a reliable grid and, and doesn't think that gas is necessarily the best deal or the right thing to be investing in, you know, they could potentially stop that build out from happening, which means you're not locking in decades of more fossil fuel use. And on the flip side, if they like to say yes to gas plants, they can make it very easy for a utility to, to lock in new fossil fuel infrastructure for decades to come. And then in terms of the large scale renewables, um, you know, they, if uh, commissioners are skeptical of the technology and uh, don't think it's a good deal for ratepayers in, in their view, um, they can absolutely block clean energy projects from being built. Uh, and that's something that utilities have to deal with. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice as much renewable energy as the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. Support for Political Climate comes from Climate Positive, a podcast from Hannon Armstrong Sustainable Infrastructure, the first U.S. public company solely dedicated to investing in climate solutions. With the climate crisis surrounding us, it's easy to let defeatism and complacency creep in, but there's so much to be hopeful for. Climate Positive podcast features candid conversations with the leaders, innovators, and changemakers driving our climate positive future. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. 
So how are public utility commissioners currently selected? Could you also tell us about what kind of influence utilities have in that process? Is there any kind of oversight for their involvement? Let's talk about how people become commissioners first, because there's a few different ways that this happens. So in most states, the governor picks these people. Um, That's in 37 states. So that means it's more of an inside game. It's, you know, if you've uh, helped out the governor or, or you're you're on the governor's you know Rolodex, the governor can pick you and put you in charge of this. And then in eleven states currently, the commissioners are elected by the people. So that's you know direct democratic oversight of this position. Uh, and then there's two more states, uh, South Carolina and Virginia, have the the state legislators pick the commissioners. So what's interesting about the elected states is, on one hand, there's the most opportunity for the public to weigh in on that process, but it can also go in the other direction in that the utilities can end up exerting a lot of influence on on the elections. And the dynamic there is utilities have to care about these public utility commissions because that's the, you know, the deciding factor of how much profit they make, essentially. Um, So they're going to invest in this no matter what, and they're paying you know, high-powered advocates and, and lobbyists and lawyers, people to be showing up at these meetings and presenting arguments on behalf of the utility. And when there's elections, in many cases, the utilities are a major donor to candidates, um, either it could be directly or, or through other kind of uh, dark money groups. And you got to remember that in, in most states, utility is one of the biggest employers, if not the biggest employer, and one of the wealthiest companies operating in a given state. And so they, they have a lot of resources to potentially handpick the people who are supposed to regulate them. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword democracy. <laughs> and in some cases, uh, if people aren't really paying attention to the election, it can be easier for the you know, company being regulated to exert sway over the people who are overseeing it. But if the public does get really excited and and makes this a, a thing that folks are talking about and going to the polls to vote on, then you can end up having like this kind of grassroots democracy uh, in action to have the people exert more control over their energy future. So that's just even how PSC members are selected, which just goes to show that your pick for governor, as you alluded to, could result in who oversees your electricity bills at the end of the day. So keep that in mind. Or when you're doing those, you know, down ballot uh, selections, those really do matter, right? So hopefully that, you know, the public becomes more aware of the power they hold in selecting these uh, utility commissioners, who then have say over a bill that pretty much every American pays on a monthly basis, right? It's a thing that we mostly can't avoid in life is our power. So incredibly important, as you say. But then there's also the challenge of once these people are in place, how do you engage with these public utility commissions, right? I think you wrote in your article, Julian, there's, quote, numerous obstacles to dissuade people from engaging with their PUCs. For one thing, the regulatory proceedings tend to be extremely boring. True. I have listened to many. Also, if you're hoping to skip the meeting and just look for information online, while many PUC websites take their design cues from the early 2000s internet and don't even ask about mobile optimization. Sort of a funny paragraph, but also speaks to the fact that it is really complicated to figure out how to interact with these entities. So you wrote this article as part of the Power by the People series. So what are some of the ways in which people can engage with their PUCs? How would you walk us through that? I've been nerding out on 
just garbage web design from <laughs> public utility commissions for a while. And uh, it's a that's a niche thing to pay attention to. But I think it does speak to this broader point of accessibility in that even for me as an energy reporter who covers these things, I, it's, it's a baffling experience to try to navigate these sites and track down the information about you know, a, a huge ongoing debate that's unfolding. Um, you know, you, you need these complicated docket numbers. And then each of these proceedings has dozens and dozens of documents that are filed to it from all sorts of people. And it, it's just pretty baffling. So I wanted to try to find some practical advice for regular people who, who don't, you know, work on this stuff and get paid to engage with this stuff. And I, I tried to lay that out in, in the article at canarymedia.com. So the really easy, basic thing to start with is just know who your commissioners are, which very few people actually do at this point. Um, but that's kind of a, a starting point because you want to have a sense of you know where their head's at in terms of caring about consumer uh, issues, you know, like you mentioned, energy, energy burden, the, the cost of your energy bill, that matters to everyone. But if your commissioners are not people who've ever had to struggle with choosing to pay their energy bill or have enough food for the month, like they might not understand what a lot of people are going through. And then also if they, you know, for example, used to work at the utility Maybe they, they're approaching things with a different perspective than when you would want your regulators who are overseeing the utility to come at it with. So, you know, every every state has a website for its commission that lists all the people and you can just kind of read their bio and get a sense if uh, if they sort of have the expertise to prioritize what, what you think is important. I'd also recommend that you figure out how your commissioners are chosen in the state you live in, because um, if you have a vote, and can cast a vote for that uh, commissioner, like that's a huge responsibility. And then you can really get involved in the election and tell your friends and family, like who you think is the right pick for commissioner. And that can have real impact on the outcomes because again, so few people are paying attention to these races that even a small group of really active and engaged organizers can kind of make a, a macro level difference there. But, you know, again, these uh, commissions, they're very complicated. They're, it's, it's hard to really know what's important among all the kind of boring procedural things happening. So I, I do also recommend you, you seek out advocates in your area who are really plugged into this. Because basically in every state, you'll have at least a few people who are engaging kind of as watchdogs on behalf of the, the public good. Sometimes the state actually funds uh, a ratepayer advocate whose job is to be, you know, fighting on behalf of all the, all the consumers and and making sure they're not hit with uh, kind of sketchy bill increases and things like that. But then there's there's often many nonprofit groups that engage in this process too, and maybe they're more environmentally inclined or, or they're they're really looking at the climate impacts of utilities. And so if you kind of find the people and groups in your state who are engaged in this uh, and you follow them on Twitter or get their emails or whatever, you, you know, they'll be able to highlight for you what's the key issue of the day that matters to you. And that can be really valuable in kind of sifting out from all the noise, you know, what you want to pay attention to. And then lastly, you know, if you're so inclined, you can actually go and testify, um, you know, these these are, are meetings that are required to be open to the public, and there are plenty of ways for 
normal people to go and, and make their voice heard. And, you know, that can be uh, as simple as calling the commission and, and sort of telling them what you're, what you're worried about or what you're concerned about. But if you want to, you know, show up in person and, and speak, there are ways to do that as well. Now, I will say it's, you know, there's a lot of barriers because you got to figure out where to go and what time. And, you know, the meetings are typically during work days. So if you have a full-time job, it could be hard to actually get out there and be a part of these proceedings. But it is possible. And if you have an issue that you, you want to weigh in on, you can find a way. I think you highlight such an important point, which is that you have to be able to engage with these decision makers to have an impact. And that can be really challenging if you have a job, you know, you're taking care of your kids or other dependents. And so a lot of people just may not have the ability to weigh in. And I think this disproportionately ends up hurting a lot of the communities that are most affected by public utility commission decisions. These are lower income communities who really feel the impact of electricity rate increases. They also are disproportionately affected by pollution from fossil fuel plants and other types of impacts like that. So we have to make sure that these communities who have a hard time engaging with decision makers have an easier time of doing that and have a seat at the table so that these rate making decisions actually work for the people in the best way possible. And I know that there are some ways of doing that, whether it's through phone access to the PUCs or other methods, but it's certainly something that I think we hope will continue to evolve and and change for the better uh, in America today. It's definitely a challenge. Yeah. And then even in some cases, the, the events and proceedings might not be happening in the language that impacted communities speak, you know, that's a huge barrier. Um, and then there, you know, there are costs involved. Like if you're trying to be showing up again and again throughout a, a whole months long proceeding, you know, that requires resources. And um, so in some states, they're now actually coming up with programs that'll pay the costs to uh, participate because, you know, the utilities they're always going to be paying their, you know, fancy advocates to engage here. And, and so some some states have recognized, OK, we need to have some pool of like funding to support community groups that want to be a part of this, you know, that don't have the, the money to just pay out of pocket for it. Yeah, that's great. And it's great that we are seeing more and more of those initiatives. But now that you've walked us through kind of the barriers and the challenges to engagement, I'd love to hear about some of the concrete examples of what happens when communities do engage, when they are able to influence some of these decisions. Do you have any of those examples of what it can look like and what difference it can make? One of the more concrete outcomes that you can see is, you know, if a new fossil fuel plant that a utility wants to build gets blocked by the commission. And Arizona's been a, a really interesting state for this, actually, because they elect their regulators. And in past years, there have been, you know, some scandalous things in the news around utilities paying to support uh, regulators that they wanted to have. But things can also go differently because these regulators answer to voters and, and they want to show that they're doing the right thing on behalf of their community. So uh, back in 2018, there was kind of this surprising outcome where this all Republican commission in, in Arizona actually froze a new investment in gas power plants that were larger than 150 megawatts. So they, they just said, hey, utilities, we're not going to let you use your customers' money to build these big new gas plants right now because this whole energy system is changing really fast. And, and it was argued from conservative principles that they wanted to pause and see how the technologies were developing and 
you know, not let the utility hit their customers with a bunch of new bills for projects that might not be totally needed in a few years. Um, but then uh, from a more kind of community driven basis, also in Arizona, there was a, a utility called the Salt River Project that wanted to really drastically ramp up a, a gas plant that was located in a historically black neighborhood outside of Phoenix. And earlier this year, a group of community members from the area that would be impacted by this chartered a bus and went into the commission and rallied outside uh, to say, you know, that they, they didn't want to have this new polluting facilities stuck in their, in their community, uh, you know, to be burning fossil fuels for years to come. And uh, actually that same day, uh, the regulators voted to reject the gas plant expansion. So, you know, we, we can't draw too many causal connections and say, if you, if you show up and rally, you will definitely get your way. But, it, you know, it's certainly an influence. And, and when the regulators see that people really care about an issue and, and have good, uh, good reasons for that, you know, that can influence their ultimate decision. Yeah, you talk about Arizona. I think we're all watching closely to see if they set a renewable energy portfolio standard or a kind of target for how much clean energy to deploy in that state. They've looked at that in the past, and it comes down to these commissioners on whether or not that actually gets approved. And so depending on how the makeup of the commission looks going forward, that could be back on the table. That's totally true. And and in Arizona, like, yeah, for years, this whole clean energy plan was kicking around in the regulatory commission, you know, like the state legislature was not doing much of anything on, on sweeping climate policy, but the elected regulators thought it was important. And now that granted, they haven't actually enacted it yet, but it got very close. And uh, that would be kind of a huge deal if Arizona ends up on a path to 100% carbon free energy uh, as a result of these elected regulators doing what they think is is in the public interest. Absolutely. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy than the state average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice have helped vulnerable communities gain access to electric vehicles, energy storage, and energy savings. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. Political Climate is brought to you by Climate Positive, a podcast produced by the pioneering climate investment firm Hannon Armstrong Sustainable Infrastructure. Hosted by Chad Reed, Gil Jenkins, and Hilary Langer, Climate Positive features in-depth conversations with a broad range of business leaders, authors, advocates, and policymakers who are committed to making a difference. Listen to Max Rodriguez, an attorney with Pollock Cohen, unpack the arguments that support the EPA's authority to regulate carbon emissions under the Clean Air Act and what impact the language in the IRA may have in the ongoing legal battle. Or find out how Tim Brown, as CEO of Tradewater, scours the globe to aggregate potent gases and destroy them before they leak into the atmosphere. 
Climate Positive unpacks their guests' personal journeys while discussing the emerging energy and environmental trends that will drive us all toward a more just and sustainable future. Check it out and subscribe to Climate Positive wherever you get your podcasts. A couple other states where there are commissioners up for election this November um, include Louisiana. Two of the five seats there at the Louisiana Public Service Commission are on the ballot. The party makeup of the board is not likely to change, but the races could affect consumers' electricity costs and ultimately how the state shores up its grid in response to extreme weather, which we know has really been battering parts of the country, especially in the South. Also, the Texas Attorney General is up for election. That will have an influence on one of the biggest energy states in the nation. That role helps influence energy policy in the state. So watch for that. The Texas Railroad Commission is another entity where voters will weigh in on leadership. And while it's called the Texas Railroad Commission, it does also oversee oil and gas production and pipelines in the state of Texas. So those are just a couple other examples of what's coming up just this fall uh, that could influence what energy policy looks like in the country going forward. Yeah, and, and the Louisiana one's going to be interesting to watch because, uh, you know, this is a state that is a huge oil and gas producer. That's a, a pillar of the state economy, but people are also getting hit by hurricanes and, and the impacts of climate change and really experiencing firsthand what it's like to lose power. And so they're paying more and more in their energy bills and then losing power for days on end when a, when a storm comes through and the grid's not ready for it. And, um, from what I've heard talking to folks on the ground there, the consciousness around the value of, of energy and the possibilities of clean and distributed energy is, is growing. And uh, that could manifest in some changes when the uh, voters go to the ballot box for those commissioner spots. Absolutely. And throughout this conversation, we've been talking about communities that have been overburdened by either pollution or high energy prices. Another thing that you mentioned in your article, Julian, that I'd love to get into is these PUC's influence on matters relating to a just transition. Can you tell us about that and how decisions made here can influence some of those communities we're talking about? I would say this is a, a new kind of evolving aspect of what these utility regulators are doing. So they've always got to weigh in on on your bills and your you know what what the utility gets to build, but now as States around the country are actively shutting down coal plants and, and laying the groundwork for the new clean energy future. There are these really tough choices uh, emerging of like what happens to the communities that have been earning a living and, and fueling their, their local tax base by having these coal plants and coal mines operating. And now after decades of providing that power to everyone in the, in the utility territory, the utility is shutting them down which is, again, it's good for the climate. We need to stop burning coal. But, you know, suddenly these these communities are, are gutted on an economic level. And um, so more and more states are, are now debating what to do about this. And the PUCs are often the uh, crucial decision maker in terms of what kind of funding can come together to support these communities. An example of how that is playing out in real time was just covered by our colleague, Alison Takamura. She's also a previous guest on this podcast, and she recently wrote about Arizona, where utility regulators are currently debating whether or not to approve a package that would support communities affected by coal plant closures. We'll be sure to link Alison's story on the show notes, but to summarize it a bit, 
the Arizona Public Service Utility and the Navajo Nation negotiated a $144 million package that would go to communities affected by coal plants being closed ahead of time. Under the terms of the agreement, the majority of the money would come from rate increases to the utility's customers. And while a final decision has not been made, last month the Arizona Corporation Commission, the state's PUC, issued a report recommending against price hikes to customers. Um, This case raises a lot of ethical dilemmas around just transition funding for communities that have provided cheap energy for decades, in this case, indigenous communities that are now faced with what to do after some of these fossil fuel plants come offline, and specifically who should be providing that funding and economic development opportunities. And we'll definitely continue to see more of these kinds of cases come up around the country and PUCs will be central to how these decisions get made. Wow. I think that just illustrates what's at stake here. It's There are these kind of far off entities, these public utility commissions, but in many ways, they're right in your backyard as well and affecting people's lives in such a day-to-day kind of way. And I think that's especially important right now. We are living at a time of global energy crisis that's causing prices to spike, particularly for natural gas, which has caused electricity prices to increase and heating prices to increase across the U.S., We're also living in a time of inflation, so consumers are really feeling the pinch right now. So an increase in someone's electricity bill that they can't really avoid to pay really has an impact on a family's budget each month and and what else they can spend money on from food to healthcare. Of course, we're also living in a time of these storms, which we've touched on, and wildfires. And so the future of the grid is so critical to think about. At the same time, there's a lot of fun things that could be happening, right? I know, Julian, you've written about some of this, like new and innovative programs that could harness, say, um, electric vehicles in a bi-directional way to support the grid or distributed energy storage or large-scale batteries or other new technologies we haven't even thought of yet will all likely flow through these PSCs. So it feels like in many ways, these are more important entities than ever before. I think that's right. And I think it's a time where having the right individuals on these commissions is, is just hugely important. Because if you have folks who take a the term quasi-judicial gets thrown around with, with these commissions, meaning they're they're not actually judges, but it, they're sort of judging things. And, you know, some commissioners around the country take a, a more restrained approach of it's not my job to come up with policy. The utility brings their proposals and I, I say yes or no based on my reading of whether it, you know, meets the legal standards. So that's a fairly kind of circumscribed uh, view of what the role is. But on the other hand, in some states, you have commissioners who take a more proactive role and, and they're out there really educating themselves about new technologies and thinking bigger about, you know, how the system could work if you had the right things in place. And, you know, I think there's can be really different outcomes for a state based on which type of commissioner is in place. And this makes me think of Hawaii, where I, I just spent some time reporting on Oahu, you know, the island that has Honolulu, and there's like a million people there. They just closed their last coal plant. So coal is done being burned in, in Hawaii. But the uh, effort to replace that with new solar and battery plants kind of ran behind schedule. You know, it takes a while to get things built out there. And um, they happen to have a, a lead commissioner named Jay Griffin, who's literally a scholar of clean and distributed energy, like studied it as a PhD in it, really kind of gets how all these new technologies can play a role in, in the overall grid. 
And so he was able to jump in and take a, a fairly muscular role, both holding the utility accountable and, and making sure they changed how they were behaving to, to sort of speed up the project management around these large solar and battery projects. But he also fast-tracked approval of a very innovative plan to, to like pay households to generate rooftop solar power, store it in a battery, and then share that clean power with the grid in the in the evening hours. And you know, this is something that grid wants and and uh, futurists have, have talked about for years. But in just a matter of like weeks, the uh, Hawaii PUC last summer approved this program. They said, "Hey, we need as much clean power." as we possibly could get to handle this, this tricky transition from our coal plant to a, a cleaner future. And, um, you know, it's very easy to imagine that a, a different set of regulators in place there would have not, you know, jumped into action and done what it took to speed things along. And, and it's always easier to not do something than to do something new. So if they just sort of hadn't tried to think of all these new creative ways to leverage clean energy, you know, the grid over there could be in a very different situation right now. It's fascinating to hear about all of these things and the levers that we have to pull on and rely on as we make this transition to clean energy. Most of us who are fortunate enough to have reliable access to electricity are just used to turning on the lights and having hot water and then paying our electric bills. But I think our attention is being refocused into some of these challenges as We've talked about either because we care about clean energy buildouts or because natural stressors are making it so we have to pay attention to these things. Um, Julian, what is one thing you wish people would take away from your reporting and from this conversation? I think it's just that the state utility regulators are a pivotal actor in the next few decades of energy transition. And, you know, in the past, uh, activism has rightly focused on presidential races, Congress, and uh, and gotten results. You know, we just had the biggest ever investment in clean energy pass through Congress and get signed by President Biden. But now we're in the implementation phase, and that flows through the states, and that that flows through the, the state utility regulators. So I, I my, my goal as a, as a reporter is to inform people, and I just hope more people out there become familiar with these commissioners and, and the power they wield and recognize that there's a lot of ways for the public to engage with them. Well, you've done an excellent job of educating us, Julian, and I think all of our political climate listeners. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's always fun to, to catch up. And, you know, we've, we've been tracking these things for a while. So uh, <laughs> I'm glad to be able to, to share it with your listeners. It's always helpful to take a step back and break it down and not just jump into what's the latest policy or program, but actually look at the decision makers crafting a lot of this. So thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. As always, if you haven't already, catch up on our past episodes with my co-hosts, Shane Skelton and Brandon Hurlbutt. Also, don't miss our Arsenal of Clean Energy series with support from Third Way, where we look at energy security, affordability, and international relations, also through the lens of the energy transition. It's a really great set of episodes with some really great guests. Finally, take a couple seconds to leave a review for the podcast wherever you are listening. It really helps us. And we also loved to see your feedback. We're on Twitter at poly underscore climate. That is it. I'm Julia Piper. Thanks to our producer and my co-host today, Maria Virginia Alano. And finally, thanks to our editor, Kyle McDonald. We'll be back again soon.